You're listening to the Mystery Behind Magic podcast, the podcast for ever learning magicians. Brought to you by Chanat Kish and Robbie Stevens. You can get years and years of experience in just under one hour and listen to exclusive conversations with some of the best minds in magic. In today's episode, we spoke to Will Houston about how he got into magic, consulting for magic and why he likes that and if he wants to do that more in the future, um, conveying information through magic and especially his work with the um, Imperial Medical School. I looked at, at my University life and looked at what my strengths London, are, what do I enjoy, and more importantly, what impact do I want to have? That's the key. That, um, what impact do I want to have? I've told you my MTP. I know that that, that uh, is what really gets me so passionate. That direction is where I'm going. So everything so I do needs to step me into that direction. So much that's the only thing that's consistent about my entire life. You watch that after this interview and then we talked about him getting a phd in magic history which i think is so interesting because i think we in a way we would all love to do it but we may never get the chance to do it but he has and yeah he's incredibly smart incredibly knowledgeable um yeah what did you think of the episode robbie i think is what i enjoyed most about it was kind of his kind of perspective on magic that you Mm. could kind of see in the, the interview i'm not sure how well we kind of managed to kind of understand it in the kind of hour we had with him but it was really interesting i really liked especially kind of his thoughts and kind of what he might change about magic and maybe taking away magic competitions and i I found that kind of the reasons and thoughts behind that really great but yeah what do you think of the episode you know yeah i really enjoyed that and like you i really enjoyed um what we talked to it was especially about competitions and you know you know regarding competitions because competitions are weird you know um but yeah i really enjoy the in- interview and he's such a such a knowledgeable person and you know an hour with him i think sh- sort of shows the very very tip of the iceberg of all the knowledge uh he knows a uh, great interview thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoy this episode hello and welcome to the mystery behind magic i'm chanad kish and I am Robbie Stevens, and in today's episode, we are joined with Will Houston. How are you, Will? Hello. Hello. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Now, let's go right back to the beginning. Where did your love for magic begin? So I first became interested in magic like lots of people did, I suppose, when I was in my early teens. Uh, a friend of my grandfather was a very wonderful magician, a chap called Claude Perry, uh, and he heard that I had been given some rubbishy magic trick for Christmas uh, by my parents and wrote me a letter out of the blue. I'd never met him. I didn't really know anything about him, uh, but he got in touch, told me he was a magician and that he'd heard I was a magician too. I very much wasn't at the time, but he was being nice, uh, and he offered to send me a couple of books with some magic stuff in them. Uh, a few weeks later, I got a package in the post, which was terribly exciting with some magic books and some props. And then he and I corresponded for about seven years or thereabouts uh, before I ended up meeting him. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And um, to our listeners, um, if you've not heard about Will before, uh, he's won the close-up comp- um, close competition in the Magic Circle before and the European Magic Championship. And when did you sort of decide that you want to do um, competitions? So I went to university at Nottingham uh, in the first instance, and I did a a master's degree in mechanical engineering whilst I was there. 
and Nottingham had a, a good local magic club uh, at the time. And so I was spending quite a lot of time hanging out with a few of the magicians uh, who were around there. One of them was a, a chap called Mark Oberon, who's still very much around, releasing all sorts of exciting products and bits and pieces. And he did a couple of magic competitions, and I sort of helped him a little bit with some of the things for that. And after he did some, I thought it might be quite fun to do some as well. So I sort of put together um, an eight-minute act of card and coin tricks primarily, all set to music. Uh, in retrospect, I'm not sure it was a great act, to be quite honest, but it seemed like it was a good thing at the time. And I entered a few competitions with that. So I, I did the local guild one, uh, which I failed to come anywhere in. And then I did the international magic one at Ron McMillan's convention in London. Uh, and I think came second, perhaps. And then I did uh, the, the Blackpool one uh, and won that. And then did Fism and did nothing at all. So, <laughs> How would you say your magic's changed over the years? Hopefully it's got better, uh, would be the first thing, I suppose. Uh, I think the, the main thing is I've worked out more and more what I'm interested in. So when I started doing magic, I enjoyed practicing card tricks. I still very much enjoy practicing card tricks and flourishy things. Both of those appeal to me a lot. Um, but I didn't really have any particular goal with what I was trying to do when I showed people magic tricks. Uh, it was just whatever I happened to be enjoying at the time. Uh, then I did magic competitions for a little while. And that very much encourages you, I think, to do this sort of slightly weird formal close-up magic where you're doing a strict eight minutes because you don't want to be disqualified for being too long or too short. And you're trying to follow the rules of the competition and demonstrate that you know, you're skillful and you have technical ability and all of those sorts of things. Uh, so I did magic that was good for competitions and was capable of scoring well in competitions, but it was still being done based on what a competition thought I should be doing uh, rather than necessarily me knowing what I wanted to do with magic. Uh, then more recently, I've become very interested in magic's history. Uh, so I've started to frame a lot of the magic that I do around that. And also just become a little bit more sort of broad in my interests, I suppose. Uh, so it's no longer enough really for me to say I'm just going to do a trick. And the fact it's a trick is the end of the matter. Uh, it has to be a trick which then goes on to do something and um, whether that's make people aware that the the world of magic history is a bigger and broader place than they might have imagined uh, or it's doing something for a film thing or a telly thing where you want to try and tell a story and the wow moment of magic isn't the primary point the primary point is you tell the story better uh, or it's using things in an educational context where I do quite a lot of work at the moment uh, it's always about using magic when the goal is to then achieve something else for me so that's that's sort of really where I've developed to uh, whether it's an evolution that's positive or not, I don't know. But yeah, And I still enjoy learning flourishes and so forth as a hobby. So what made you change from wanting to do well in competitions and making tricks and routines that were going to do well in competitions to doing now that seems that, um, you know, suits you better? I think... I realized that competitions were a little bit pointless. Um, so I think when I started entering competitions, I was very much of the opinion that they would show you that you were good and you could be better than other people and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, and then fairly quickly, particularly after doing well in a few competitions, uh, I realized that that's entirely nonsense. 
Uh, and the whole thing is really incredibly subjective. You know, if, um, I don't know, Lennart Green or Guy Hollingworth had been in any competition I've ever been in, there's no way I would have been winning them. Uh, if there had been a whole load of magicians who were perhaps less good um, than I was, then I would have won them. And it doesn't really say anything about my ability or my skill level. It's just whether I happen to be more to the taste of two or three judges on one particular day than the other four or five people who happen to be in the room. Uh, so that idea of using them a way of sort of proving something started to fade away for me quite quite dramatically, I think, after that. Uh, and instead, I realized that competitions are very useful, but they're useful as long as your goal isn't to try and win. So if your goal is to get a good show reel where you've got a great video of your competition, often that's a good way of doing it because someone's going to be videoing them so there's a record of it. If the goal is to have a deadline so that you work on something and you focus and you build towards being able to do your magic better at the end of it, again, a competition seems like a great thing to do. Uh, if you want to try and showcase the things you're interested in to some of your peers who normally you don't get a chance to perform for and you treat it like a showcase, again, that's great. But all of those are things that you can achieve without worrying about the winning, the losing, the I'm better, the you're better, the I'm not good enough, all of that stuff. Uh, and so all of the, the competitive element of it started to feel a bit shallow uh, and a bit unhelpful, I think, to me. And so then inevitably I started moving away from it a little bit. With that in mind, has that kind of, I guess, shaped the way when you judge magic competitions, like the elements you look for when you want to kind of, I guess, decide who wins, who comes second, who comes third and all this stuff? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting one. I mean, anytime I talk with somebody who's doing a competition, I do try and sort of emphasize the fact that the winning bit isn't necessarily the, the strongest bit of the competition uh, and that if they're entering for that alone then maybe there are other things that would be healthier and more productive uh, to do with people's time I suppose competitions do inevitably force you to have a winner and so often there'll be a few people who you feel maybe aren't quite up at the same standard as other people there'll be a group of people who are sort of somewhere in the middle and then there'll be one or two acts where you go oh they definitely did something. And whether it's they had a really great angle or a lovely theme or a great presentation or great technical skill, there's something that made them stand out. So most of the time judging, it's sort of picking between the one or two standouts, I would say. Um, and then that all just comes down to taste. So I happen to like technical sleight of hand. So that's something that goes over quite well with me. Hopefully, if I'm judging a competition, the other judges won't be people who like the same things I like. So there's a bit of balance where other people on the on the panel like different things. Um, but yeah, my, my taste definitely influences it. I think the one thing which is always interesting with competitions is what happens with the competitors afterwards, though. Uh, so one competition I worked on for a while was the Magic Circles Close-Up Magician of the Year after I won it. Uh, I then chaired the judges, so I didn't do the actual judging, but I organized who was going to do the judging and sort of supervised the discussions and all these sorts of things. Uh, sometimes people who did badly took it as a way of getting feedback afterwards and trying to do things better in future, which is great. Uh, sometimes they just got annoyed that they hadn't won, which didn't seem like it was going so well. Uh, the most impressive people, though, for me, were the ones who won the competition. So they got the first prize, and then they still sent an email the following day saying, thanks very much, really enjoyed it. What things do you think I should be doing differently in future? How do you think I should make this better next time I do it? Um, so uh, an interesting thing, I think, is what people do after the competition uh, rather than what they do at it. 
Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and that that was an incredible insight of you know it's yourself being a judge. And so, do you think it's overall beneficial for people to enter competitions, um, or or just work on something they know they need to work on, or is it you know good to get feedback from people who have been doing this for years and years and are probably professionals and know what they're talking about? I think the feedback is absolutely fantastic. I think competition can be great because there are quite a few of them around. So there's sort of a nice existing thing you can sign up for and it gives you the deadline and all of these things. If I was going back to square one and sort of recreating the whole thing, I probably wouldn't bother inventing magic competitions. And instead, perhaps I would have, I don't know, like new faces showcases or something like this. Uh, And so people who you didn't necessarily know might sign up to do five to 10 minutes of close-up magic on a night and you would see eight people doing stuff and then you would still get all the benefits of the deadline and the peer support and the feedback um, without the winning and losing side of things. But that's unlikely to happen. You know, people like competitions. It certainly is a good marketing thing to say, you know, I'm the person who won this, you know, as, as you saw, you introduced me using it. So I'm clearly, you know, slightly contradicting myself by having all of that stuff on my website when I say that I don't like it in a podcast. Um, but yeah, I, if it were me, I would get rid of the competitions and have showcases. It's not my choice. So I think competitions are here to stay and I think they can be very beneficial. I would just say that anyone entering it really, if your only goal is to try and win and to try to say I'm better than other people, like have a little think about whether that's a good thing that you think is going to work well for you or maybe whether there's a different way of approaching things Hmm. yeah that that makes a lot of sense and so i think the reason why people like to market it is just so people who don't understand magic layman they can sort of go oh they've won something that probably means they're good you know or you could have that or put a video but they might not appreciate that video as much or they can't say you know for example wedding organizer it's much easier to explain that they've won the close-up, you know, magician of the year in the biggest uh, magic society in the world, rather than, you know, show them a video. So I, I think that's why a lot of magicians enter so they can use it, or you know, if they do, when as you said, use it uh, just so it's really easy to have somebody point to it and go, "Oh, look, they've won this, so they must be good." Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, but I think it also points to something else that I think is interesting about the magic world and again which I would I would love to try and develop and try and have change over time but you know it's a it's a big thing that won't change immediately which is that magic is often performed I think to an uneducated audience by which I don't mean that an audience is stupid of course they're not they're they're smart probably smarter than we give them credit for an awful lot of the time but by which I mean they're not people who consume large amounts of magic and have spent time sort of developing a critical way in which they can engage with it. So most of the time, if somebody goes to a film, they can say, did I like it or didn't I like it by comparing it to tens or hundreds of other films that they've seen in different styles with an awareness of the choices about the lighting and the way it's shot and the way the actors have played different parts. Most of the time when somebody sees a magician, you're the first one they've seen and they don't really have any place to judge things. So I think something which would be fascinating would be to have a sort of more magically literate public where people didn't just go, oh, it's magic. I've never seen it before. It was great. 
even though all you did was crazy man's handcuffs and an ambitious card with an omni deck at the end that you know somebody else created somebody else scripted and you're just sort of following along what the actions are um but rather you would have people going oh I know that this is something which is a bit standard. I know this is something which is unique to this person. Oh, I've seen people do this before, but I know that actually I prefer comedy things to things which are more manipulation-based. Uh, and people could start to engage with magic in the same way they might engage with cinema or they might engage with music uh, or they might engage with art in a sort of traditional fine art sense. Um, so I think, you know, if people can get to a point where we manage to share magic more widely and make people more aware that there is more breadth to it and more depth to it uh, than might immediately be apparent, things like competitions might become less important because people have something else they can judge based on. Um, until that point, as you say, they're going to judge it because Magic Circle Close-Up Magician of the Year sounds great. Uh, or indeed, people write award-winning magician because they came fourth in the the Surrey Sorcery Society's annual whatever competition 10 years ago. Um, but yes. So kind of in relation to that, how do we go about bringing the beneficial change? Because I, I know you kind of have the the video magic and that was kind of to raise money for effective altruism and charities mm. kind of based around that. So I was wondering, do you think you're kind of thinking in kind of to effective altruism could have some kind of play in magic where you're kind of doing the most effective thing to bring about the change instead of the kind of things that will have less significance yeah perhaps it's a very interesting question and not one that i've thought about before um so for people just to give background who haven't come across this, uh, over the course of the last year, a very dear friend, Steve Thompson, and I ran a project called Video Chat Magic, uh, which was exploring magic that would work on platforms like Zoom in response to the COVID pandemic. Uh, we didn't want to profit from it personally because it felt like a lot of people were having trouble because of a pandemic. And it's sort of a bit uncouth to try and make money out of that. So instead, uh, we donated all the money it raised to charity and it raised about $36,000. And all of that was donated, uh, as Robbie's just said, according to this idea of effective altruism, uh, which is essentially saying if you're giving money to a charity, how can you try and have the largest impact on the largest number of people with the highest degree of certainty that that thing is going to happen? Uh, so a very, very basic example of that might be that if you had uh, a chunk of money, you could donate it to a charity which provides guide dogs to people in a Western country like Ireland, let's say. Uh, and for a chunk of money, you would be able to provide one person with a guide dog that would help them get around in the city. Uh, but if you were to donate that money in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, you could give thousands of people a cheap medication that would prevent them from becoming blind because of infectious diseases that are in the water system. And so effective altruism would say it's better to try and help a thousand people in a more significant way with a higher likelihood that that impact will happen when you give the money. Um, so it's a very sort of analytical approach, I suppose, to giving money. I think you're probably right that you could do that with magic and how it would change things. It's not something that I've tried to do at all. So I suppose you would have to say, how can I reach the largest audience, which presumably means television or as television dies, something like Netflix, or I 
and very much not of this world, but fantastic content on TikTok or something like that. Uh, and then also means how do you reach a large audience with something that says there's more to magic than just uh, wedding magic or just kids parties or just whatever that preconception is uh, and spreads that message. I mean, I think the other thing to say about this is clearly it is happening at least a bit. So you have somebody like Derek Delgadio uh, doing his show in and of itself in New York, which was incredibly well incredibly well reviewed as something that sort of went beyond a traditional magic show. Uh, in this country, a little bit in America, I suppose, as well, pre-pandemic, you have somebody like Darren, who's very much doing kind of magic for grown-ups. It's stuff that feels a little bit more serious, a little bit more more sensible, more thoughtful. Uh, so there certainly are people who are doing things like this, I think. I just think that still, if you bumped into somebody on the street and mentioned magic, they're probably going to think of somebody doing sponge balls in TGI Fridays, or they're going to think of somebody doing a kid's birthday party. And they're not going to think of all of the other stuff. Uh, so it's a case of raising awareness. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe the effective altruism thing is a, a better way of thinking about how to make that change. Yeah, 100%. And um, you talked about it a little um, in, the bidding, uh, in, in the beginning, but you've uh, consulted for Twilight Zone, Hugo, Wolfel, um, and RJ Watchers, uh, just to name a couple. So when did you realize that you want to start consulting? So I did a couple of little theater things. So I did some stuff for the Royal Shakespeare Company. I did some stuff for some sort of amateur uh, television uh, student projects. And my interest in magic was developing very much in the direction of sleight of hand magic and also in the direction of the history of magic. Um, after I had finished university. I sort of finished university, said, I don't want anything to do with engineering, thanks very much. I'm going to do magic instead. Spent time on sleight of hand and reading old books. And the, the main librarian at the Magic Circle, a wonderful man called Peter Lane, uh, got in touch with me because somebody had contacted him saying they needed help with a film project and they needed somebody who could do sleight of hand and they also wanted somebody who liked Victorian magic because that was what they were going to do. At the time, I'd written a book about Victorian magic lessons, and I liked doing sleight of hand, so Peter put them in touch with me. I thought it was a, another student project. I thought it was going to be something like this, uh, but said, fine, you know, if you'll send a, a cab to pick me up, uh, I'll meet you. We can have a little chat about your, your project, whatever it is. Uh, first sign that this maybe wasn't a student project uh, was the fact that I got picked up in a Rolls Royce by a chauffeur uh, and then driven oh, wow. to Shepparton Studios. And then fairly quickly, it became apparent this was not a student production, but was rather a bigger budget production. Uh, and it turns out that was the, the early stages of Hugo, uh, which was a, a film about George Melies, a pioneer of early cinema and a magician that was directed by Martin Scorsese. Uh, so not a student production at all, but great fun, very interesting. I wasn't available for all of it. So I worked on it with Paul Keeve, who's done huge amounts of consultancy work. And I just found it great fun. I think something I love about magic is problem solving. Uh, I also very much enjoy teaching people things, uh, whether it's magic or teaching people other things, using magic as a vehicle for that. And I had done quite a lot of lecturing to other magicians. So I sort of had a good, a, a good knowledge of what magic's possible and a good knowledge of how you can explain it clearly to people. And magic is often a little bit lonely I think in as much as you tend to perform by yourself develop material by yourself uh, rehearse material by yourself 
And there's something just very exciting about arriving in a room and going, there's a props department who can make anything you want in an incredibly good way. And there's a lighting department who'll look at that. There's the camera people who are going to say, we want to shoot from here in this way with this thing. Can we do that? There's someone looking at post-production who says, well, that method is great because we can't see it. But actually, you could do this. And even though there's a rod that you can see, we can edit that out in post-production. So if that's a better way of making the trick look good, let's do that. And then there's a director saying, we want to use this to tell this story. And there's an actor who's learning it and then putting their own spin on how the thing fits together. And there's something very exciting about that collaboration, where a whole group of people come together to try and achieve a common goal. And I think that consultancy stuff really allows that uh, in a way that I hadn't experienced before. Um, There's also that thing which I think happens to lots and lots of people, where you happen to do something by chance at some point, whether it's going to a magic show and realizing that you're really excited by it or getting a random call to go and work on a a particular uh, consultancy project or getting booked to do a show that you haven't really done before and then discover you love, where you do something once by fluke and then because you've done it once and enjoyed it, you try and do more of it. And because you've done it once, other people go, oh, you must be a person who does this. And so then you get to do more and more of it. So partly I I very much enjoyed it and it was great fun and partly once people see that you've done something you start getting asked to do other things because now you've got a bit of a a track record I suppose. And are you looking to do more consultancy in the future? Yeah absolutely Um, so just before lockdown uh, just before lockdown came there was a a musical which opened in the West End The Prince of Egypt uh, based on the animated film And that had some magic in that I got to work uh, for a couple of friends filling in for a few days whilst they weren't able to do stuff. And, you know, everything's sort of been on pause. So I've helped a few magicians with stuff for their video chat shows, uh, the kind of magic stuff that you can do over Zoom over the last year. But fingers crossed, touch wood and everything else that expresses hope in some way, uh, theatre and so forth will be returning in the not too distant future. Um, and as it comes back, hopefully there'll be more chance to work in it. I think one of the big things I'm an advocate of is the idea of having a portfolio career. So rather than saying I'm a gigging magician, which means I do walk around jobs and that's it, or I'm a consultant, so I work on theatre shows and that's the only thing I do. I like the idea of doing lots of different things. So I edit a magazine for the Magic Circle. I do bits of consultancy. I do some shows sometimes. I sometimes lecture for other magicians. I do work in an academic context with Imperial College and their medical school. I do work with magic as a therapeutic thing with an organization called Breathe Arts Health Research. And all of these different things inform the other bits because you learn things by working in a strange area and then you can pick that up and put it into a different area. So they all sort of inform each other, but they also mean that you don't get bored. And I think if you do anything all the time for long enough, it will start to feel like a job. Uh, But by doing lots of different things, even if you're going, I'm a bit fed up with the theatre and I have seen this show 14 times at this point because we're getting to the end of the preview week, you can still go, but next week I'm going to be with a group of master's students looking at how doctor-patient interaction can be thought about using magic as a lens. And that's going to be completely different. So I, I really like the idea of doing lots of different things for the variety, for the way it informs each other bit. And also because if something goes there are still lots of other bits. If I had only been working in theatres, the last year would have been very difficult. 
but because of doing lots of different things, you know, even if you lose a couple of bits, you can still keep doing other things as well. So I, I like that approach to doing stuff, which means I do want to do more consultancy, but also want to do lots of other things as well. Are there any new things you want to add to that portfolio in the future that you're kind of trying to work towards to get to? That's a very good question. So one of the things which I've been working on over the last 10 years is using magic in an academic context. Uh, and currently that's working at Imperial College, one of the, the big universities in London, uh, who have a very good medical school. Uh, and I'm a, an honorary research associate in the Department of Cancer and Surgery, uh, as well as affiliated with the Centre for Performance Science as a performer in residence. And so in those roles, we're looking at how you can use magic to teach people things that are useful in other areas of their life. And we've been looking at that with medical students, but we're still in the process of um, proving that it works. So anecdotally, it works great. You can teach people a magic trick. You can explain some things about the way a magician thinks about that interaction. And a medical student can take those things and then apply them when they're interacting with the patient. Uh, but what we need to do is build up some data to say this does work and with a broad broad group of students lots of them get value from it and then if we can demonstrate that we can start to say this is a useful thing that should be part of the curriculum and anyone who's going to the university and studying medicine should have access to this course where they'll learn magic and that will teach them things about how they interact with patients so that's certainly something i want to develop but there are quite a few hurdles along the way because i'm used to working broadly by myself or in the context of a theatre production. I'm not used to working in a university which has hundreds or thousands of employees and all sorts of, you know, administrative stuff and red tape and so forth. Uh, so it's been very interesting developing the ideas, but then also trying to develop the research that backs them up and which makes them viable uh, in a large institution. But hopefully that comes off at some point. And what made you decide that you want to uh, work at university, especially uh, the Imperial University in London? So all of this really ties in uh, with my PhD. Um, so I, as I said, I did this mechanical engineering master's degree. I then spent a few years having gap years, which was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I working in Spain doing magic shows and traveling around America doing lectures and then writing a book about late 18th century card tricks. And as part of that, somebody mentioned to me that you could do magic academically. And that really didn't make sense to me because my experience at that point was that university was something that you sort of ought to do, uh, but not necessarily something that was super fun. And, uh, you know, lots of people obviously love their courses and that's fantastic, but I, I wasn't one of them. Uh, but once somebody says this thing that you love, you could do a university, it's quite hard to drop that idea. So I sort of called around a few people, found somebody who was willing to supervise a PhD, a wonderful woman called Marina Warner uh, at Essex University at the time, and then started a PhD based on Professor Hoffman, who wrote a book called Modern Magic in 1876 uh, that really kick-started the golden age of magic with all of the, the great performers, the Thurstons, the Kellers, the Houdinis, the, the Vance uh, of this world and revolutionized, I would say, the way in which magic has been performed ever since. And the big thing that Hoffman did was to say that people should learn magic, not just magicians, anyone, sort of young, young people should learn magic, not because they should become a magician, 
but because it would teach people useful skills. It would teach them how to present information to a group of people. It would teach them how to problem solve. It would teach them how to deceive. It would teach them how to spot deception. And all of these things, as far as Hoffman was concerned, uh, would be useful in the education of a future professional uh, or in the furtherance of the British Empire, which at the time was still a thing. Uh, So this idea of Hoffman's was to say teaching magic practically is a thing which brings things to other aspects of people's lives. Uh, And that idea of using magic as a tool to achieve something else is something I really liked. And so in the imperial context, it is using magic, but it's not teaching magic so that people can make a rubber band jump from two fingers to the other. Uh, It's teaching people magic so that they can interact with their patients better or in the business school so that they can interact with their clients and teams they manage better. Uh, or with young people in a therapeutic setting so that they can do everyday things better, or even in a film context so that the director can tell a story better. Um, But that idea, which sort of all flows from this stuff with Hoffman, really, of using magic to do something beyond just a moment where people are amazed and to go, that was amazing, that was a lovely experience, and now we're going to use that in the furtherance of some larger goal is really what I'm interested in. Are there any particular examples you could give that kind of illustrate the point, especially in regards to medicine and how magic can be used when medical students and doctors are kind of interacting with their patients? Because I'm, I'm finding it like kind of slightly hard to grasp how an immediate effect, like obviously magic's good kind of to help your kind of social skills. But if there's like any kind of immediate way which magic can help, that would be good. Sure. So I I suppose it just gives people a new set of tools around which they can think about an interaction. So if you think about a medical consultation, like you're going to your GPs, uh, it's normally just two people in the room, you and the GP. Uh, There's a power imbalance because the doctor knows stuff uh, and you don't know stuff. There's a fairly short space of time, five to 10 minutes. Uh, You don't know each other and you have to build some sort of connection and rapport quite quickly. Uh, The other thing about it, which again maps onto magic perfectly, is that it feels like it's all about the doctor, but it's not all about the doctor. It's all about the interaction between the doctor and the patient because the doctor knows the medical stuff, but the patient knows how they feel. They know how their body normally works. They know why it's working differently. And both of those things are essential to create the consultation experience of working out a solution to that problem. Uh, Move to magic, close-up magic, let's say. Uh, You're often performing for a very small audience, maybe just a single person. There's a power imbalance because you're the magician who knows how the tricks are done. They're the people who don't know how the tricks are done. There's a short period of time in which you're going to build a rapport with somebody. uh, And even though it feels like you're the magician doing stuff at them, if you're a good magician, you're doing things with somebody because you need that spectator, you need their interaction, you need them to engage with what you're doing. And it's only when both the magician and the spectator come together that you can co-create that moment of magic. So those situations very much stack up on top of one another when you look at those fundamental aspects. Uh, as a specific thing that you can use, something you know you guys will know and everyone who's listening to this uh, as a magician will know, the old uh, John Ramsey rule of if you want somebody to look at something, you should look at something. And if you want somebody to look at you, you should look at them. It's great. We all know it works. We all know you can use this to change where somebody's attention is focused. The sort of follow-on rule from that is that if you don't want somebody to be looking at something or thinking about it, you shouldn't look at it. 
Uh, and a lot of the time, GPs are doing that uh, because a lot of the time, as I'm sure you and anyone else who's been to the GP will know, you're in the middle of explaining something, talking to the GP. They turn away from you. They start looking at their computer screen that you can't see and they start typing stuff. Uh, you as a patient are going, hang on a minute. They're not looking at me anymore. Their focus is on the computer. I want to know what's on the computer. I can't see what's on the computer. Are they Googling what's wrong with me? Do they know what's going on? Are they checking their emails or their Facebook? I don't know what this is. I feel very uncomfortable about the whole thing. And it's because the GP doesn't know this idea of if you look at something, other people will want to look at it. So as soon as you know that, then you go, ah, that's a thing. If I look at my computer, they're going to want to look at it. They can't see it. And that's going to set up all of this uncertainty. So I can justify it in the same way a magician might justify going to their pocket to ditch a coin by saying, I need a pinch of whiffle dust to make it disappear. Uh, the GP can say, I'm really interested in what you're saying, and I need to make a couple of notes so that I remember it later. Then they can go to their computer and type stuff out, and it all makes complete sense. But it's by teaching somebody a magic trick, teaching them that rule of where you look, other people want to look, and teaching them that idea of sort of avoiding the speed bump of a hand going to a pocket when there's no reason for it to go to a pocket, and that makes people suspicious, that people can then look at what they do in a new way. Uh, and, you know, if you're a, a trainee GP even, you'll have thought about consultations hundreds or thousands of times, and you'll have sort of settled into a way that you just do things because it's how you've always done them. You do magic, you've never done it before, it's all brand new, you're sort of open for any possibility. And then by highlighting a few of the possibilities to be useful in the other context, they can then be taken into the consultation uh, and change the way someone thinks about that. So that that's an example, I suppose, uh, of something that pops from one to the other. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And in the show yeah, notes below, you. I'm going to link um, the video uh, where you... Sp where you spoke with Roger Nebo, the, profession, uh, the professor of surgical education about dissecting the consultation. And I watched that and I found that really interesting. And uh, oh, one, of the, one of the things you um, mentioned in there was sort of um, about improv, about how we all have a structure that we follow. So we know the method of the trick we're doing. Um, we know around about what we're going to say when we're expecting a reaction, you know, sort of how the audience is going to react most of the times uh, but sometimes they don't go as um, you know they don't go perfectly and you mentioned uh, that you were performing or you were going to perform a mentalism um, um, routine and the spectator needed to read the card uh, but they didn't have their glasses on them yes. and you sort of made a joke about it about you know um, she needed to look at the bag or you know I think you said uh, she got her friend to look at it and then um, that her glasses didn't work, so they. Yeah, it, it was a nightmare. Bag. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when that moment comes, I feel like a lot of people, because they don't happen to us, you know, a lot of the time, it's hard to prepare. So how do you know exactly what to do? And you said you made it comical. How do we do that and not just get embarrassed and go, "Oh no, what do I do?" Yeah, I. I think there are a couple of things. So I think one thing is scripting everything quite carefully. So every trick that I do, I script pretty much fully word for word in terms of what I intend to say. I also do a silent script. Uh, so what are the things that I intend to think at various points during a trick? Uh, and what are the various movements that are going to take place during a trick? So I try and plan all of those out. And I plan all of those out as the ideal case. At uh, the point of that, though, isn't 
that I have to do those things every single time. The point is that I know that is everything, and I know that if I do that, everything has been covered in a good way. What that means is that when something unexpected happens, I don't need to start thinking, have I said everything? Will I say everything? I have a nice script. I know that I can follow that along and that will cover everything. But because something unexpected has happened, I can slide away from it, acknowledge whatever the other thing is, and then come back into the script, knowing where I am and able to continue with the rest of it. So I think one of the big things is scripting, not because it means you should do the same thing every time, but because knowing what the best case scenario is allows you to then deviate, acknowledge any of the other things that could happen, and then get back into the flow of things nice and smoothly. Uh, so that's one big thing, I think. Uh, the other big thing for all of it, which I think is just something that happened over a period of time for me, I'm not quite sure how one develops it, is to realize that it sort of doesn't matter that much. Uh, obviously, people like seeing magic tricks. Obviously, it's lovely when the magic tricks work well. Uh, obviously, it's kind of depressing uh, when you completely mess something up in front of people. But none of that is a really big deal. It's a little bit damaging to your ego, but it's not going to ruin anyone's existence, you or in your audience. Uh, and also, the one thing I think that people really like seeing is somebody enjoying something they're doing. Uh, and so if you can enjoy a trick not working, that's still going to be enjoyable for people to watch. Uh, so I think often when things go wrong, you don't know what the right answer is. Afterwards, you can analyze it and go, if that happens again, how can I handle that better? What can I do differently? Often when it happens, you have no idea what the right answer is. But as long as you acknowledge to people, like, something a bit a bit weird's happening not quite sure what's going to happen with it but let's sort of see where we get to together and you enjoy that process then you're just taking everyone along on this enjoyable journey uh, and in some ways it's even better because they're going to be there on the night when this strange thing happened and you and they all came together and figured out this wonderful experience where it got solved in however it got solved or the evening where the whole thing went wrong and you had to abandon it and move on to something else. It sort of doesn't matter which. Um, but I think just enjoying it really is the, the key thing, but also very, very easy to say and very difficult to do because even though it isn't important, it feels like the, the world is falling away from underneath you as you realize that the, the whole thing's gone completely to part. How strict are you at keeping to your script? So where possible, I will. Um, the idea is that the script is always the best version of what could happen. Uh, so I would always stick to it where I can. If something happens, that means sticking to it doesn't make sense. Uh, let's say I drop a coin. It would be pretty weird not to acknowledge the fact that I've just dropped a coin and it's rolling across the floor underneath somebody's seat. So I very much have to go away from the script at that point to acknowledge it and do something. But then I would try to get back to the script afterwards. Uh, of course, there are also those moments where you go, this isn't in my script, but I think this would be hilarious. Or this isn't in my script, but I think I need to say this and that's going to make this work better and clearer. Uh, those things come up. It's always great to try them because you never know. They might be the thing that works. But as soon as the show's finished, if you go, actually, that was better and that was funnier, you write that into your script. So now your new script has that better version in all the time. So it's not a case of the script being finished, I would say. 
it's sort of a case of constantly updating the script so it's always the latest version of whatever you think the best thing that could happen in the course of a performance is. How do you avoid there being kind of like a jarring sensation if you go off script? Because I, I feel that I certainly would, if I'm on script and I'm talking and then something goes wrong, I feel there would be kind of a difference in how I am kind of saying things and approaching things. So how do you combat that? So I think there are two options. One option is that you don't combat that. It's pretty clear that your main performance is you and you're doing a scripted rehearsed thing. It's quite exciting to go, oh, hang on a minute, everything suddenly just changed. He's not quite sure where he is anymore. Where's this going? Uh, and so having that kind of break and a glimpse of the real, the real you, as it were, uh, or the you that's in a bit of a panic and is trying to solve something can be quite exciting and quite compelling to watch. Uh, so much so that, you know, there, there are lots of people, I suppose, who script that and very carefully act it so that it feels as though you're getting that peek behind the curtain, even though you're, you're not getting that peek behind the curtain. Uh, the other version is to have your scripting close enough to who you really are that you can be yourself and it doesn't feel like it's jarring. Um, so I'm not sure in my case, I would very much struggle, I think, in a walk around gig in that sort of blokey, matey kind of thing that some people do incredibly well uh, in a, a corporate sort of setting. If I did that, I could probably learn how to say the right things at roughly the right time. But as soon as anything changed, I wouldn't be saying hi, mate, or something. I'd be going, oh, goodness, terribly sorry. And the whole thing would break down. It would be absolutely awful. Um, but if I can make my performance thing sort of close to who I am, then that jar won't happen. Um, and I think a lot of magicians who you see doing things and enjoy watching doing things have figured out a sort of close version to who they who they feel they are and how they behave in day-to-day -day life. So as I perform... I certainly use slightly flowerier language when I'm performing than when I'm chatting with friends in a casual situation. Uh, I'm a little bit more formal. I do a little bit more of the kind of English thing uh, than I might do otherwise. But none of it is an enormous leap away from who I am in day-to-day -day life. So it might be a surprise to bump into me in day-to-day -day life and find that I might swear and I wouldn't do that on stage. But it certainly wouldn't feel like it was an entirely different person. So it would avoid that jar. Do you think that's important to keep your um, on-stage personality or character very similar to who you are in real life, in quotation marks, in real life? Um, just so if people after the show, you know, want to talk to you or want a picture and you're completely different of how you were on stage, they go, no, oh, that that's weird, that's unusual. Yeah, I think it depends what you're doing. Um you know, if you went to see, I don't know, some actor, Andrew Scott, let's say, uh, acting in a play in the West End, and then you bumped into him in the bar afterwards, and he was still talking and acting in the same way as he had been on stage whilst he was doing a Shakespeare play, you would think that was pretty weird. Uh, you would much rather that he was a Shakespearean character on stage, and then he was a normal bloke the rest of the time. Uh, and I think there are plenty of versions of being a magician where you go, I would like you to be a normal bloke afterwards. Um, 
Maybe someone like Jan Frisch is quite a good example. Fantastic act, really, really great at FISM. He's sort of playing a slightly schizophrenic, crazy guy who's perhaps gone a little bit mad and finishes by throwing a jug of water on his face. I don't think that's what you would want if you bumped into him afterwards in the theatre foyer. You do not want to see him walking around with a jug of water uh, coming towards you. You would want him to be uh, a sort of a nice guy who had clearly been playing a character the rest of the time. So I think you could be a very clear character on stage, and then you're very clearly not the rest of the time as Jan is, or maybe as an actor is in a, a conventional sense. The challenge is that if you are pretending to be authentically you on stage and it's not genuinely you, then there's the potential for a discrepancy. So somebody like Darren, I would say, is not saying I'm completely playing a character. He's sort of saying, this is who I am. This is what I do. This is this is me. And so if that completely changed when you saw him off stage, that would feel weird. So I think it's down to what character you have. The other thing which it's massively down to is how good an actor you are. I'm certainly not a good enough actor to play a character that's entirely different from myself. I'm probably a good enough performer to choose the bits of myself that are most useful when I'm doing a show and highlight those bits and suppress other aspects of myself. Um, So I would go for that version, which is more who I really am. Uh, If I were a better actor, perhaps I would delight in doing things that were entirely different. Uh, The other key thing as well, which I think ties in with all of this, a wonderful magician called Richard McDougall uh, told me quite a while ago, um, the show isn't the bit when you're on stage. The show starts the first time they see you. The show finishes the last time they see you. So when you arrive in the venue and you're saying hello to the person who's booked you, you're now on stage and you're in performance mode. Uh, When you finished your show, you're packing things up in the car and somebody who's having a cigarette comes over and has a quick chat with you, you're still in performance mode. Uh, So that's another way of avoiding that discrepancy, I suppose, is thinking of your performance not as being the moment my name is mentioned in my introduction to the time I bow and leave the stage, but it's the first time somebody at the event sees me to the last time somebody at the event sees me um, is when the performance takes place. Yeah, that's that's really well put. And um, sort of moving on, you mentioned earlier that you have a master's. You studied mechanical engineering in university and you didn't enjoy it very much. Um, then you got a PhD in magic history. Mm. How did how does that work? It's a little bit of a jump. Uh, and frankly, I'm as surprised as anyone else is that it did work. Um I got very lucky in many ways. So I, after doing this master's degree, I had done these magic competitions. So it sort of looked like I knew what I was doing magic wise. Uh, I had also written a couple of books about the history of magic because I happened to find that interesting uh, and given some talks at sort of history conferences that uh, exist in the world for magicians or used to certainly. Um, And then got in touch with this wonderful woman, Marina Warner. Uh, who's an expert on fantasy and fairy tale and myth and all sorts of things related to magic. Uh, Not necessarily magic tricks per se, but all of the things that are sort of connected. Uh, And she was in the Department of Literature, Film and Theatre at Essex University, uh, was interested in doing something to do with magic with me. I had a very pleasant tea with her and sort of discussed ideas for what might be an interesting PhD. And she was also there very much as somebody the university wanted to show off. 
So I think lots of universities have the teaching staff who do most of the work, and then they have their sort of celebrity uh, lecturer who go, you know, come to Essex and you'll get to study with people like. She's very, very much in that category. Uh, and so the fact that she was keen on this thing happening made it much easier to get the university to have it happen. So normally I think you would have to do a master's in at least a humanities subject rather than the science subject before doing a PhD in a humanities thing, having only ever done science up to that point. Uh, it worked out that I was able to sort of send some writing samples from other things and convince them that it was fine based on that. Um, so yeah, I, I got lucky, but I suppose I got lucky because I had done a number of things that were connected with it and you know put some work in finding the person who I could be lucky with in making it happen. Um, yeah, not the best answer, I'm afraid, but an answer. No, is it? No, it's a really, really good answer. Yeah. Did you have an overarching question for your PhD? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the big challenges, I think, with any piece of research is to work out what the question you're trying to answer is, because uh, you want to make it a good question. You want to make it a big enough question, but not too big a question. And so the thing that I ended up saying is that there was this golden age of magic. Uh, this period where everything changed, or at least as far as magicians were concerned, they were telling each other that everything changed. And Professor Hoffman's books were hugely popular during that period. So what was it that made Professor Hoffman's writing so successful uh, in terms of the reach it had, the impact it had? What was the impact it had on the magic world? What was the impact it had on the general public's understanding of magic? And how has that impact um, sort of rippled through to the present day? Uh, those were the, the broad questions that I looked at. How would you say your knowledge of the history of magic has helped you in your own magic? So, it, how has it helped? So, I think it's probably very possible to be a, a great magician without knowing anything about the history of magic whatsoever. Uh, although it happens that most, like, I think most of the very good magicians do actually know quite a lot about the history of magic. Um, and I think it helps because you have an awareness of what people have done before, and then you're able to build on what people have done before. Uh, if you don't keep an eye on what's going on in the magic world and what has been done in the magic world, it's very, very hard to get to the point where you're doing something good because you have to start at scratch and then work all the way up to something good. Uh, we have an extraordinarily vast literature on magic. Uh, it's very, very dense over the last hundred years, but there's a good 400 years before that where there's still a decent amount of stuff written. And so if you want to try and do something, there's a fair chance somebody else has tried to do something pretty similar in the past, and you can look at what worked for them, why it worked, how it worked, how that's rippled through the ages to the present day, and take the bits that are useful, discard or change the bits that no longer apply, uh, and shape things in all sorts of interesting, interesting ways. Um, so I suppose a good example of that might be the thought readers. Uh, so there's a big craze for thought reading in the late Victorian period. Uh, and one of the reasons for this, perhaps, is technological innovation in the late Victorian period. So you have the telegraph being invented, uh, which allows you to send text over vast distances. Uh, you have the telephone being invented, which allows you to send voices over large distances. 
And given both of those things would have seemed impossible perhaps 10 years earlier, but both now existed in the world, it's quite logical to say that maybe telepathy is also something that could exist in which you can send thoughts over very large distances. Uh, so you get lots of magicians uh, saying, I can be a thought reader instead of a magician. It's sort of on the edge of what people believe to be possible. It's just about feasible, but it's certainly not commonplace or day to day. And then that's a great hook around which you can frame your magic. Uh, if you were performing today, I think, and you said the telephone is a miraculous device, the telegraph is a miraculous device, and because of those, I can read your mind, people would probably ask you what a telegraph is in the first instance, and then they would say neither of those things are miraculous. Uh, we've got the internet and television, they're kind of better, and the whole thing just wouldn't work. But if you're somebody like Darren Brown, you can say, what did they do? They tied their things into the cutting edge of scientific and technological development and then pushed it just a little bit further than it could actually go. Uh, look at Darren's TV shows. Darren is tapping into a public interest in neuroscience and psychology and the kinds of things that are possible with those areas and then pushing that a few stages further than they can actually go and using that as an incredibly captivating way of framing a magical performance. So I think a decent example is perhaps Darren doing basically the same thing that the thought readers were 150 years ago and taking the aspects of their approach that worked and keeping them and then taking the bits that just don't make sense in a modern context and changing them so that they do make sense in a, a contemporary context. And are there any sort of com key components in in magic that has stayed in magic and you think makes a good trick almost evolve through the years and now you can go oh that's what makes a good trick good question i think one of the things that i particularly love about magic is the fact that in many ways it hasn't evolved uh it's sort of got more sophisticated perhaps Technical execution has been finessed perhaps to a, a higher level. Uh, the technical complexity has been developed, but the sort of fundamental key idea has remained pretty much the same. And if you read a book like The Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott from 1584, it talks about things like doing a false transfer to make a coin disappear. Uh, and presumably, that was a pretty amazing thing to see at that point. Otherwise, Reginald Scott wouldn't have been writing about it. So in the 16th century, doing a false transfer, making a coin disappear was interesting. It was magical. There's something about that experience people really liked. Uh, one of the things I think is rather wonderful is that in the intervening 500 years, we have got the telephone, we've got radio, we've got the internet, we've got mobile phones with more computing power than a space rocket that went to the moon however many years ago. So many different things in life have changed. There's so much more stuff that we do understand in the world. There's also so much more stuff that we take for granted that we don't understand in the world. And yet, pretending to put a coin in your hand uh, and then pretending to make it disappear is still something which is fundamentally interesting to see. It's still something which provides a sort of amazing experience to people. Uh, so I think the thing that I, I like about magic and I like about the way it's sort of maintained itself over this period of time is that what was fundamentally a good trick in the 16th century by and large is fundamentally still a good trick today and even though the world has changed in so many ways good magic still is good magic um and yeah the fact that that's constant i think speaks to something quite 
deep and speaks to something about what it is that humans want from existence. Uh, and that's perhaps not something which changes as much as technology and other things do. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Will, for coming on the podcast. And uh, we're going to get into the quick fire round questions. My goodness. <laughs> um, so what's your favorite deck of cards? My favorite deck of cards. It's going to sound like an awful plug. I used to love uh, stud playing cards, which were Walgreens' own brand of playing cards. They were great, particularly because you could get them very, very cheaply. Uh, they're not a deck that I would spend large amounts of money on. Loved them because they were cheap and they felt amazing. Uh, they went out of print, so I designed a pack of cards that International Magic now sell called Leverets. Uh, they're inspired by a William Morris wallpaper design from the 1870s, which is about the same time Hoffman was writing his books. Uh, they have smaller indices that I think are nice. They have deep red and deep blue backs, uh, and they're a very, very thin, soft, crushed stock, uh, which is the stock I particularly like. Uh, so I'm going to choose those uh, naturally because they're the ones which I drew, designed, chose all the features of uh, based on my taste, and therefore they're the ones I happen to like, I suppose. If you could only keep one book, what would it be and why? Ooh, very good question. So there's a, a set of books, and I'm going to push my luck with it. Um, but there's a, an Argentinian author called Borges, uh, who wrote sort of postmodern fiction, as well as a whole load of nonfiction book reviews, all sorts of different things. Uh, and there's a, a two volume set, which is the kind of complete collected works of him, all the short stories, uh, all of the nonfiction essays, book reviews, etc. Uh, I would probably choose those. And I would choose them because they are incredibly re-readable. Um, and you sort of get more from them each time you read them. And also the ideas within them are things which I think are incredibly magical. So they're not a, a magic book, but they're certainly things that make you go, why on earth has nobody ever done a magic trick with that kind of structure? Um, so yeah, I would choose them. If you can meet any magician past or present, who would it be and why? So, um, two options. One option would be Hoffman. Uh, because I spent four years studying him. Uh, the reason to say no to Hoffman is that I think if you walked up to somebody and said, hi, you don't know me, but I spent five years of my life studying you, they might run away screaming. So let's discard Hoffman. Uh, and I'm going to pick Charlier, uh, the chap who invented the Charlier one-handed pass, uh, which lots and lots of people do, uh, was apparently the greatest card magician that Hoffman, Maskelyne, Bertram, so many other people saw, but about whom we know almost nothing. He appears in London. Nobody knows where he came from. He blew everyone away with amazing card magic for 20 years. Then he disappeared. No one knows where he went. So it would be pretty cool to meet him, both to see the card tricks uh, and perhaps to find out a little bit more about who he was. If you could only perform one effect, what would it be? That is a great question. I don't think I have a good answer to that, to be quite honest. Um, if I were forced to choose, I would choose shadow coins. Uh, it's a trick with four, four coins on the table. It looks like they jump around and you sort of keep your hands above them the whole time because it's a trick I like and it's a trick that I can sort of practice lots and get better at all the time. Um, but I don't feel particularly strongly about it, I suppose. More worried about the books. If you couldn't do magic, what would you do? Probably calligraphy. 
Any particular reason why? Uh, it's, uh, I wanted a hobby. Magic has always been my hobby, but it's also my job now. And I became aware perhaps that doing the same thing for a hobby and a job all day long wasn't a good idea. So I thought I should get a new hobby. Um, calligraphy, I find quite challenging, but quite pleasing. Uh, it takes enough focus that you can't worry about other stuff, but not so much that it's stressful. It's something that I practice every day. Day, so it's nice to sort of see improvement over the course of the last three years or thereabouts. And it's very, very different from magic in as much as at the end of writing something, something exists in the world that didn't before. So everything I do in the magic world, at least in terms of performance, is about an ephemeral experience which finishes the moment you stop doing it. There isn't an item in the world at the end of it. Um, I think one of the very pleasing things about calligraphy is at the end of doing it, there is a thing in the world that didn't exist that feels as though it has some value to me. Um, and the permanence of that appeals somehow. If you forgot everything you knew about magic and the history of magic, and then you had to go about relearning it, what would those first few steps of trying to relearn it be? That's a great question. The thing I'm wondering is whether I would or not. I, I've certainly enjoyed learning about magic, and I'm certainly pleased to know about it now. But if you told me, whatever it would be, 26 years ago, it'll take you 26 years to feel like you've got half a handle on this, I think I'd probably say, I'm all right, I'll, I'll do something else instead for a bit. Thanks very much. Um, so I, if you took it all away and said, start again, I... I don't know whether I would or not, to be quite honest. Um, I think the one thing that I would do if I wanted to learn how to do card tricks and so on well, though, would be to get lessons with somebody who is very good. Uh, because I learned an awful lot by reading books and figuring it out for myself. I think I gained a lot by doing that. But I think I could have learned a lot more, a lot quicker by having somebody else choose what would be most useful for me to find out and choose what would suit my ability best. Uh, and then do something a bit more structured. So maybe I would go to somebody for lessons would be the, the change. And then what's a tip that you have for the listeners just about magic? I would probably go with be interested in as much of it and as much other stuff as possible. Uh, I think one of the big challenges that you see in all sorts of different places is people feeling like they have to pick a bit of it and only like that. Uh, and certainly the, I did a thing for the Young Magicians Club a little while ago with a friend. One of the questions that came up was, I don't know which bit of magic to choose. And you go, don't choose, just do all of it. Every, every bit that makes you happy is the right bit to do. Equally, you get lots of magicians, perhaps of a slightly older generation, who are very much like, you know, it's proper magic if you're doing table hopping or stand-up gigs, but none of this flourishy nonsense, that's a waste of time. And I think there's huge amounts to be gained in terms of how you handle things and manipulate things by looking at flourishing and all of that stuff. So I think I would just say, try and stay interested in as much of it as possible for as long as possible. I mean, kids' magic is about as far away from what I'm principally interested in as possible. Uh, listening to David Kay talk about the psychology of a kid's show is incredible and teaches you all sorts of things about how you interact with any audience in the future. So maybe retain breadth would be the tip.
What does the mystery that magic beholds mean to you? So I think the thing that magic fundamentally does is offer a safe way in which people can interact with the unknown. Um, most of the time in your life when there's uncertainty, it's an uncomfortable thing, it's an unpleasant thing, and it's a thing which can have serious and negative consequences uh, and therefore is not particularly enjoyable or easy to settle with. Uh, a magic trick allows you to experience uncertainty and to interact with things which at least feel as though they're the unknown and the uncanny within a frame that is entirely safe. Uh, so I think it's a way of interacting with the the unknown and perhaps the unknowable that doesn't involve any of the danger uh, normally associated with that. It's amazing. Could you share um, a horror story that has happened to you, please? Thank you. Yes, I could. This is the you mentioned this just before we started recording. Uh, I've enjoyed all of it, frankly. I've been looking forward to just doing the horror story uh, more than the rest of it. So uh, we have spoken about the Blackpool Magic Convention competition, the European Championships of Close-Up Magic, and this is perhaps part of my disillusionment with magic competitions, or, or at least realizing quite how subjective they are. Uh, so if people haven't been to Blackpool, at least at the time when you did the close-up competition, you performed three times in three different rooms. Uh, there was a teeny tiny little room, which only sat about 100 people, uh, which was the first room that I did my performance in. Uh, there's a second room, which was mid-sized, maybe sat 400, 300, something like that. Uh, then there was the big room, and the big room is the, the galleon one. It's a weird one. It's got kind of paintings around the sky, like it's the sky in a, an Italian city or something. Um, and that room, I think, seats about 1,200 people or thereabouts. It's normally pretty full for the competition. So there's about 1,000 people watching in this room. Because they can't all see, everything is being filmed by Bob Hamilton, uh, who's done more good in the magic world than practically anyone else in this country, I would say. And it's being projected onto a giant screen. So there's a thousand people watching a version of me that's at least two times the size real me is doing magic tricks. Uh, ridiculous. One of the things that I'm doing in this uh, act is banishing a pack of cards using a method that I think I've invented, but I later discover was invented by Robert Houdin in the 1870s, uh, where you ribbon spread them across the table. And then as you close the ribbon spread, they all go into your lap and then you simulate spreading them again. And it looks like they just sort of fade away into nothing. So lovely bit, really, really like it. Uh, I did that. Somewhat unfortunately, uh, when I lapped the deck of cards, it didn't entirely go into my lap. Uh, so it sort of all went over the floor next to the table, uh, which means essentially, as far as I was concerned, about 1,000 of my peers saw me pretend the deck was disappearing uh, whilst openly throwing it on the floor next to me. Um, oh, no. Didn't feel great, I'll be honest. Uh, was pretty convinced the whole thing was a disaster and the whole thing was going to go horribly, horribly wrong. And then was terribly, terribly surprised later on to find out that I won the competition. Uh, which I realise in retrospect is because of Bob Hamilton and his filming. Uh, to make sure everyone can see, he had a tight shot which went from the front of the table to the top of my head. The front couple of rows are maybe watching live. That's perhaps 40 people. Uh, the remainder of the 1,200 or whatever it is are watching on the screens. Oh, wow. The screens aren't showing the floor whatsoever. Uh, and the judges are far enough back that they could not see the floor in real life. So yeah. it was one of the worst cock-ups I have ever made in front of one of the largest audiences I have ever performed for. Uh, and thanks to a complete fluke, 
uh, and the wonderful Bob Hamilton. I oh, completely so got away with it as far as the judges were concerned. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Will, for coming on the podcast. And thank you, honestly, so much for everything that you shared with us. It was so interesting. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's a real pleasure. Thank you both very much for doing this. It's a great thing to have out in the world. So, yeah, really appreciate the work you put into it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. If you want to find out more about Will Houston, you can go to his website, drhouston.com, and you can find his social media and things he's contributed to on drhouston.com forward slash social, including his Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and things including video chat magic, the secret connection, the magic shuffling video chat feature split in two, and much, much more. We'll also link dissecting the consultation down below uh, as mentioned at the beginning that's an amazing conversation so i'll highly recommend you check that out and if you want to find out more about us we have a once per fortnight newsletter um, which you can sign up to by going to the mystery behind magic.co.uk forward slash newsletter and you can join our community by signing up to our facebook group the mystery behind magic and you're not if you're not already following on us on instagram please make sure to give us a follow the mystery behind magic on instagram thank you so much for tuning in and we hope to see you next time